The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 6 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC6. This is Secret Church 6, Episode 6. If you got a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. What we're going to do is we're going to take three more steps in the passion narrative. We've, we've started with the Last Supper, and now we're going to go to the garden, and then we'll go to the cross and, and see two glimpses of the cross. The cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the cry of, or declaration of triumph, it is finished. So Matthew chapter 26. Um, Verse 36, I want us to read this one together. Sinclair Ferguson said, The Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. One of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh and body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The theme I want us to see tonight in the Garden of Gethsemane is a $2 theological word called propitiation. And if you look a little farther down in your notes, you can see how to spell propitiation. Propitiation. This is a word every follower of Christ needs to know. Not many of us know it. We need to know propitiation. The truth here is that Jesus endured our condemnation. And what I've listed as the key text are four texts in the New Testament where we see the New Testament word here that that pictures propitiation. And we're going to show, I want to show you how the Garden of Gethsemane sums up this truth that Jesus endured condemnation for us and what propitiation means. Propitiation, Jesus endured our condemnation. You remember, remember Romans 3, 25. When it says, when the Bible says, when Paul writes, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. In fact, just go there real quick. Go in your Bible to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And look with me at verse 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Now I'm guessing amidst the many translations that there probably are, across the room. There's different translations in this, in this verse. And if you've got an NIV translation, the, 
words or God presented them as a sacrifice of atonement. And you probably have a note that takes you to the bottom and gives you an additional description of what this term is in the New Testament. The note at the bottom in my Bible says, or, as opposed to sacrifice of atonement, or as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away sin. And that's, that's the phrase here that I want you to lock into your mind. God presented him as the one who would turn aside wrath, taking away sin. And here's the truth. Sin, and this is in your notes, sin arouses the fury, anger, and wrath of God. Sin arouses the fury, anger, and wrath of God. Paul's been talking about it. ever since chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up to chapter 3, verse 19. The sinfulness of man and the wrath of God do sin. Sin arouses the fury, anger, and wrath of God. As sinners, that means we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. Sin evokes fury, anger, wrath in God. We are sinners, so we deserve to bear that wrath. So Jesus, as our substitute, again, we're taking this diamond, satisfaction through substitution, we're just kind of turning a little bit more. As our substitute, Jesus became the object of God's fury, anger, and wrath so that we might not experience it. And this is what's going on in the cross and specifically in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus on the cross is turning away God's wrath, taking away our sin. Now there's actually two theological terms here. One is expiation, which means our sin is removed. Taking away our sin, the second part of that phrase. Jesus takes away our sin. To have sin expiated means it's taken away, it's removed. Propitiation means God's wrath is satisfied. When we sang earlier, we sang in Christ alone, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We are singing about propitiation there. It just doesn't fit well into contemporary worship songs. You can't, <laughs> what do you rhyme with propitiation? It just doesn't work. So, Instead, we'll go with this. God's wrath is satisfied. So what does this mean? And how does it relate to the garden? When we see Jesus going to the garden and three times praying, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. It begs the question, what is this cup that Jesus is talking about? And the answer may surprise us a little bit. The cup of the cross is not primarily physical suffering. When we see Jesus sweating blood from his pores in intense agony, it's not because he is thinking about the physical pain associated with crucifixion. The cup of the cross is predominantly spiritual suffering. There is a spiritual reality expressed in the prayer, Father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. And this is important. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is not a coward about to face Roman soldiers. If he is, if what he is cowering in the garden about is about what the Roman soldiers are about to do to him, then what are we to say of the countless martyrs since that day who have gone to their deaths singing? The man in India who is skinned alive, who looked at his tormentor and said, take my outer garment off today. Today I clothe myself in a new garment. Christopher Love, as he's being led to the gallows, and his wife is applauding him, saying, today they will sever you from your physical head, but they cannot sever you from your spiritual head. And he goes singing to the cross. Were they more brave than Jesus, their Savior himself? 
Absolutely not. What is causing this anguish is not the fact that Jesus is a coward about to face Roman soldiers. It's the fact that Jesus is a Savior about to endure divine wrath. I want you to hear with me the Old Testament description of the cup. Psalm 75, verse 8. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Listen to the intensity in Isaiah 51. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his what? His wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Of all the sons she bore, there was none to guide her. Of all the sons she reared, there was none to take her by the hand. These double calamities have come on you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword. Who can console you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like antelope caught in a net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord and the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. It's the goblet of wrath. Jeremiah 25. They take my, from my hand this cup filled with the fi- wine of my wrath, God speaking here, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. These are uncomfortable words when we think about God. Ezekiel 23, you will drink your sister's cup, a cup large and deep. It will bring scorn and derision, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. Habakkuk 2, you will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. Revelation 14, some of the... Some of the most humbling depictions of the wrath of God. Revelation chapter 14. He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Revelation 18, give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. This is the picture over and over and over again, Old Testament, New Testament. A cup filled with the wine of the wrath of God. Old Testament. This is where we're going to just fly through, but get a picture of the seriousness of the wrath of God. Remember, we diminish the wrath, we dilute the wrath of God, we diminish the holiness of God. We don't want to diminish His holiness. In the Old Testament, God's wrath is real. There are more than 20 different words that describe God's wrath in the Old Testament. More than 20 different words. More than over 580 different references to God's wrath. Over 580 different references to the wrath of God. And I've listed some of the the pictures there. And there's... They're staggering. Let his own size see his destruction. Let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. See, the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. His breath is like a rushing torrent rising up to the neck. Ezekiel chapter 7. I'm about to pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. 
Ezekiel chapter 22. Get through the middle. I will gather you into Jerusalem as men gather silver, copper, iron, lead, and tin into a furnace to melt it with a fiery blast. So I will gather you in my anger and my wrath and put you inside the city and melt you. I will gather you and I will blow on you with my fiery wrath and you will be melted inside her. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you will be melted inside her and you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath upon you. This is real. God's wrath is personal. It's personal. It's God speaking to his people. Ezekiel, or Exodus chapter 32. And leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Deuteronomy 6. Your Lord, your God, who is among you, is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you. He will destroy you from the face of the land. This is God among his people. God's wrath is personal. It's intense. It's intense as if what we've seen is not intense enough. Listen to this picture in Isaiah 13. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other. Their faces aflame. See the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Ezekiel chapter 5, the same. God's wrath is intense. God intensely hates sin. Do not do this detestable thing I hate, God says. He intensely hates sin, and as we've talked about, God, in his holy wrath, intensely hates sinners. It's what the Bible says. We cannot soften this. Do not soften this. You hate all who do wrong. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. His wrath is intense, it's sovereign. It's authoritative. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? God's wrath is steady. God's wrath is not irrational, ladies and gentlemen. It is steady. It is consistent. It is predictable. Evil always provokes the wrath of God. God is a righteous judge who expresses his wrath every day. God's wrath is steady. It's pure. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. His wrath flows from his purity. God's wrath is loving. What do you mean loving wrath? Think about, think about those whom you love. Think about your children or your wife or your husband or your mom or dad or whoever. Think about someone you love. Anything that would threaten them, threaten to harm them, is going to be met by you with major resistance. I love my wife. I love my boys. And as a result, that which threatens to harm them evokes a response from me. That which is not good for them. There are so many things in this culture that there is a holy, I hope in my heart, a holy anger for. I do not want them to be pulled away by this is a picture. God's wrath is loving. So that's Old Testament, New Testament. God's wrath is continual. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. The wrath of God is being revealed, continually revealed. God's wrath is coming. Jesus said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Romans, Paul says, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. It's coming. God's wrath is deserved. He talks about how Condemnation in Romans 3 is deserved. We deserve condemnation from God. It's deserved. God's wrath is eternal. Why does he say such serious things about sin, Jesus? If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Pluck out your eyes, throw them away if they're causing your sin because there's a place called hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's eternal. God's wrath is final. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power. God's wrath is dreadful. Revelation 6 They will call out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And God's wrath, ladies and gentlemen, is irreversible. Irreversible. Middle of Revelation 14, 9 through 11, it talks about the smoke of their torment rising forever and ever. It's the New Testament language. Can't get any longer than that. Forever and ever. Revelation 20 talks about judgment If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Irreversible. So this is the picture we have in the Old Testament, New Testament, of real, intense, personal, coming, continual, dreadful, irreversible, eternal wrath. On the cross, we discover the one who turns aside the wrath of God. Propitiation. Dependent on the initiative of God. This is key right here. That God presented him as one who would turn away his wrath. There are pagan religions where there is a concept of propitiation. Where a God or gods, the gods are angry. And so we need to do these things in order to placate. In order to satisfy the wrath of the gods. That's not what's being taught here in the New Testament. Because the reality is we are the objects of wrath and there is nothing we can do to satisfy it. No matter religious works, no matter good deeds can cover over the sin which provokes the wrath and fury of anger of a holy God toward our sin and us in our sin. And so it's God who's initiating propitiation, not us trying to figure out what can we do to propitiate an angry God. It is God himself saying, I'm going to initiate propitiation. Propitiation is dependent on the initiation of God. It is accomplished by the Son of God. It's one of those words, same word that we see in Romans 3. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's the picture, the atoning sacrifice. We don't have time to look at John chapter 3 and Numbers chapter 21, but it's a picture of a sinful people who deserve the wrath of God. We're just going uh, to fly over that. We just, we just don't have time to do it. I'm sorry. Propitiation 
is a demonstration. So it's accomplished by the Son of God, initiated by the Father, and it's a demonstration of the love of God. Now this is where we really see this whole picture come together. 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What we need to see is the, you got God, Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, all God. One God, three persons. What we need to see in the Father and the Son is the Father and Son working in unison here. The picture in propitiation is not a loving Son who is trying to placate an angry Father. We've got a loving Father in this picture. We don't have the Son and the Father at odds in any way. They are in unison in this picture. God was, God's Son was sent. Jesus was sent by the Father's love. The Father sent His Son by His love. So it's the Father's love that makes propitiation possible. Forty times in the Gospel of John, you've got John mentioning that the Father sent the Son Jesus talking about how the Father sent him. It's obviously summed up in John 3.16. He gave his one and only Son. And what we've got is God was sent by the Father's love, not just for us, but the Son, or the Father loved the Son. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. So what we've got is the love of the Father who sends the Son, and then God's wrath is endured by the Son's love. God's Son is sent by the Father's love. God's wrath is endured by the Son's love. You don't have the Son unwilling, an unwilling participant in this thing, saying, well, if I have to. This is not, it's not an accident, brothers and sisters. It's not the picture, the story is told so often of the, tr the train operator, bridge operator, and the train is coming. Some of you may have heard this story. The father and his son, they're there at the bridge, and the train is coming, and the son has wandered off to plays with his dad at work for the day and he's caught and the train's coming and the father has to release the lever so the bridge is put down so the people in the train don't die and he's faced with this decision do I save my son and let all these people in the train die or do I kill my son by letting this lever down and let all the people of the train live and this is what's usually a story, an illustration used to describe the cross. That is absolutely not what's going on at the cross. This is not a son who's wandered off from the father and gotten into something he shouldn't have and now he's in a predicament and the father has to figure out something to do. Absolutely not. The father sent the son and the son is being obedient to the father. That's why he's going to the cross. And God's wrath is being endured by the son's love because Christ is being obedient to the Father. This is where we need to realize. As we think on this Good Friday, we need to remember that we are not saved from our sins because a bunch of Roman soldiers arrested Jesus and beat him and mocked him and nailed him to a cross. We are not saved from our sins because of what these Roman persecutors did to Jesus. We are saved from our sins because the Father and the Son in complete unison 
willingly went to the cross and Christ took the cup filled with the fury of the wrath of God. One preacher said it is like you and I are standing in front of a dam 10,000 miles high and 10,000 miles wide filled to the brim with water. And in one instant, that dam is let loose and all of that water comes rushing toward us. In the same way, the torrent of the wrath of God came rushing toward us. Now imagine as that water comes towards you, the ground in front of you, right before that water hits you, the ground in front of you opens up and swallows every single drop. In the same way, Christ went to the cross. He took the full cup of a wrathful God and he drank down every single drop, turned it over and cried out, it is finished. That's what happened at the cross. He endured our condemnation. He experienced the wrath that was due us. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And when he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.